as part of our baptismal vow to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, I have taken it upon myself to make sure that my children are constantly interacted with with a young blood love language. You may have seen the five love languages. Well, we've invented one that didn't show up in the book. I have invented it. Just kidding. I didn't invent it. But I try to make sure that the love language of sarcasm is employed nearly all the time. I want to make sure that my boys develop a robust emotional life, and so I, I rib them ceaselessly, and then they return the favor. Kathy adds her bit with incredible capacity to make puns, which is stunning. The great Alan Dubel was the only person I knew who could, could rival her capacity. I don't mean to put pressure on her, but if you're around her sometime, you'll notice the puns and you'll be astounded. But for me, it's sarcasm, because I think that's what people need, and... <laughs> The other day, I, in an effort to make sure that our oldest son knew my unrivaled affection for him, I made fun of him in some way. And he, because these boys are witty too, yes, yes, self-proclaimed congratulations to yourself much, these boys are witty. And I said something or another to Kaler that was, you know, it was hilarious. And, and cutting too, so, so that he knew how much I adored him. And he responded this way, Dad, you are so funny. Pause. But looks aren't everything. <laughs> and I thought, that's pretty good. The earlier service didn't get it. It was a way homer for them. I had to explain it. It took 22 extra minutes. Thank you for laughing heartily. It's funny. I gave him credit. That was funny. He's getting the gift of sarcasm so that we can mutually share that and, 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 and dwell in the bouquet of, of the aromatic love of sarcasm. You're funny, but looks aren't everything. And unwittingly, he gave me a segue into this sermon today, something that the author of Hebrews might likewise say, that looks aren't everything. As we're in this season of Advent attentiveness, where we're trying to heed the admonition of the author of Hebrews who said we must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. The recognition, as I've heard Joe Novenson say before, is the only thing you have to do to drift in the Christian life is nothing. It's part of the entropic principle. Yeah, see? Things break down. We drift just by being here. Our faith gets wobbly. And so he says we must pay more careful attention. So Advent is a time where we are trying to perk our antennae. To be attentive to realities that we can't see. And the author of Hebrews would want us to see as he's telling this group of people who are suffering because they're attached to Jesus. They're losing things. It's looking like promises aren't being answered. It's looking like God isn't coming through He's trying to urge them to remember that looks aren't everything. That looks are not everything. And so he begins this way. He says, it is not to angels that God has subjected the world to come. And we pause there for just a minute. You realize that's in the Bible there. He says, the thing we're talking about here, the world to come about which we are speaking. He says, we're talking about the world to come. Do you realize there's a world to come? You can't see that. It's not immediately apparent to you. Even if the sun somehow were to burn out, though it's fueled by the 
the love that keeps the world going. There is a world to come that we look forward to, a renewal of all things. This is part of the Christian hope. It's not to angels that that world to come has been subjected. In other words, angels aren't going to be kings there. But there is a place where someone has testified, and it's called Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels, crowned him with glory and honor, and put everything under his feet. And when you read Psalm 8, you realize it's a reflection about the dignity that's been imparted to people who have had conferred upon them this profound privilege of bearing the image of God and that God has entrusted the magnificence of this whole world, the raw resources of this world to to draw things out, to make things, to subdue things, to cause flourishing. He's honored us, made us a little lower than the angels and crowned us with glory and honor. But we're impartial, imperfect, graffitiized, vandalized images of God. But here he's talking about the image of God who is the exact representation of God's being, as you may remember from last week. He is the radiance of God's being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. He's saying, really, in Psalm 8, what it's talking about is Jesus. And listen to this. In putting everything under him, under Jesus, God left nothing that is not subject to him. So here's the pronouncement. This Jesus, who was the creator who for a time became lower than the angels, so that he, who once spoke the world into existence, now had to entrust the meeting of his hungers and the changing of his diapers to a teenage girl. That same one, he's saying, is now the king over everything. Everything is subject to him. All of you and me, creeks and mountains and fields and trees and chinchillas and deer and even that silly little lap dog you have for some reason all subject okay it's a joke kind of it's not a joke they're all subject to jesus like he's the king of this coming world he's the one with whom we have to deal he's trying to make sure we pay attention to this and he says but and see this is what's really comforting i think about the scriptures because on the one hand we know jesus is the king There's no ounce of creation where he doesn't proclaim, you covenant college people, this is mine. Right? We know this, kind of. But it gets very hard when you leave here this morning and there will be a fight on the way home in your car, either between husband and wife or between roommates or the kids or kids and family. Or maybe, if you're lucky, everybody will be fighting all at once. You'll be trying to take a nap and somebody will hit you in the head with something. Maybe. You will be told that you're funny but looks aren't everything. You'll go to work tomorrow and your computer will crash. Somebody you love will get some diagnosis you don't want them to have. You'll be continuing to reel from some loss that's awful. And you look around and you say, hold on a second. If this Jesus is the king and he rules over everything and he's all powerful and he's awfully mighty and he's plenty intelligent, why are all these bad things happening to us? Why does it look as if crime and Democrats rule everything? <laughs> I'm just playing to the fox crowd here. Why does it look as if Jesus isn't ruling? Why does it look like every man for himself or 
terrorists are in charge or humanists or sin has run rampant. Why does it look this way? Well, it's really encouraging, I think, that the Scripture wants to help you realize that looks aren't everything. That it says, I know, I know, I know. We say that nothing is not subject to Jesus, but then he says this, yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him. It's an acknowledgement. We are believing something that our eyes cannot tell us. Our ears have to tell us. And this is something very important about the life of faith. The author of Hebrews is going to reiterate this in a number of different ways. He's going to say, you know, without faith, it's impossible to please God. If you want to please God, you've got to have faith. He delights in those who put their trust in his unfailing love. He loves it when people count on him. But faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you don't see. That means faith is stuff you can't touch and you can't see. It's something you have to hear with your ears. See, in our world, as Thomas Long said, the battle between the ear and the eye, the eye always wins. But for us, who have begun to believe this message and are trying to pay more careful attention, it is imperative that we realize that there is reality that our eyes cannot access. You know, one of the things that the scriptures would have us see is that there is almost a a curtain, a wall of invisibility, much like in the Narnia tales, where Lucy stumbles through the wardrobe into another world called Narnia, which is concurrent, there's an SAT word, at the same time as another world that is running along parallel to their world in England. And they went through a portal, and there they were in this other world that was real. And the Bible wants you to see and to believe that there is a broader world than the one you can see and touch and feel and experience. And Jesus is king of that and of this. And one day that will be all of this. And he'll still be king. If you're on his side, that's good news. If you're not on his side... You won't get to be part of it. That's why they're telling us to pay attention for if the message spoken by angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? He's saying don't ignore this even though it's not in front of your eyes. It's easy to ignore it. It's easy not to think about God. Most people aren't urging you to think about Him. But the author is saying you can't trust your eyes. Looks aren't everything. People of faith have to use their hearing. They have to hear the word of God and combine it with faith. And that what we hear actually emboldens our faith. This is why we can speak the truth to each other. Katie Mobo the other day, Katie Bosom, are you here? Is Katie here? She must be working today. Katie spoke at the Thanksgiving service, and I thought she said a wonderful thing because she has, in my mind, a horrible job, but an amazing one. She works in NICU, as I think a nurse, nurse practitioner. If I'm saying that wrong, someone forgive me. But so her whole job is dealing with babies that are fragile and vulnerable and may not be going to make it. That strikes me as awful. But it strikes me as awesome that she is someone who has been entrusted with this level of care and this competency that are wed together, and she helps people in these very fragile situations. And she talked about, on Thanksgiving, a baby who had been born that didn't look like it was going to make it. 
And she said, at the same time, I got a text message from Jordan Stern, who deals with chronic pain issues and whose husband, Chris's mother just passed away. His father's fighting cancer himself right now. And she said, she spoke the truth to me that I needed to hear. Because you see, this is what we need to do for each other. We have to remind each other that looks are everything. If we think that looks are everything, then you're going to be tempted to evaluate what happens in your life solely by what you can see and not by what you've heard about this Jesus who's ruling and reigning over all things and who will one day make all things new. We have to learn to speak the truth, which is that aspect of reality, which is not always available to our eyes, but is always available to our ears. That's the trick of faith. That's why you got to pray for faith. That's why Paul, for the Ephesian church, says, I keep asking that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ will give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better and that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know the hope that's been given to you, the glorious inheritance of the saints and his incomparably great power for those who believe. Because he knows without prayer, without some way of bringing these things to your mind, without God helping you to trust, with helping you to believe what you hear, then your vision will be stunted and your hope will be dilapidated. And you won't expect any power from God. If you win the lottery, don't play the lottery. If you win the lottery, my understanding is this. You can get a lump sum payment up front, which is going to be discounted. Yeah, yeah. Or you can receive an annual annuity for the rest of your life or something. A payout over time. This gospel that we believe is in a way like winning the existential lottery, but we get the annuity, the daily annuity option. One day there's going to be a lump sum, but right now what the ear of faith has to hear and the eye of faith has to trust is not what it can see, but it has to keep trusting that Savior who has told us, I'm not going to leave you. See, because we're in between these times where it's not present available to us to see everything that Jesus rules. But he says, I will not leave you. I'm with you. So daily, we come to him and we ask him, fill me with your spirit. Direct me with your hidden hand. Resource me with the love that I need. With the courage, with the resilience. And we offer that to each other. Believing that looks aren't everything. The other thing you see here, though, is that you get a rubric for your own wrestling existence by looking at this Jesus. He says, we don't see everything subject to him, so you can't trust everything you see with your eyes, but we do see Jesus. And obviously when he says you see Jesus, he doesn't mean we literally see him with our physical eyes. He means we've heard about him. We've heard about what he's done. We've heard about what's happened to him when he was ascended into heaven. We see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And then it goes on this way. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, through whom and for whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation 
perfect through suffering. And both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. It's very easy in our current moment to imagine that who we are is something that we construct. You can curate an image and an identity online to make yourself look a certain way. If you run a business, you can brand yourself in a certain way. You can construct an identity. But historically and theologically, what the Bible would want you to say is you can't really ever think about who you are apart from God who made you, whose image you bear. So it tells you God for whom and through whom everything exists. That's a blanket statement. Everything you know about, every existing thing was made for God, including you, including your friends, including people who hate him. They were made for him. They exist through him. They can't ever fully understand who they are apart from him, nor can you or I. What's good news about that is if you start to embrace this and realize, I have now, by looking at this Jesus, who was made for a time a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he tasted death for everyone, I have a rubric for understanding myself and my daily wrestling existence. Man. That was a pretty gigantic... Did that little baby make that sound? Woo. That was impressive. You should have videoed that. Here's the rubric you've got. You have a Savior who knew more limitations in his life than you've ever experienced. And you have a set of diagnostic questions to kind of put to yourself when you start to wonder, is God really there? Does God really care? Is God going to do anything about it? Does it matter to follow God? Is he, is he there? And you could start to ask this question. When you find the moments that make those questions emerge, you say, did this ever happen to Jesus? You got people in your life who are talking bad about you, who are defaming you, who are telling lies about you, and it's injuring you in some way. And you can say, did my Savior ever have anyone lie about him, speak untruths about him, treat him unjustly? Check. Have you ever been called a devil? Have you ever been told that you have a demon? Well, Jesus had. He was accused of being a blasphemer, a drunkard, a glutton, someone who didn't trust God. Have you ever prayed and prayed for some afflicting thing to leave your life? And you've begged for prayer and you've asked other people to pray for you and it didn't go away? Did Jesus ever do that? He did. If there's any way that this cup could be taken from me, take it away. He stood there on a cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Have you felt forsaken? He did. And if you're his, you're going to feel things that he felt. You're going to experience things that he experienced. The one who makes men holy, he was making us holy. He was making us gods. And the, one who, the ones who are made holy are of the same family. It's called participating in the sufferings of Christ. You have a rubric for starting to understand your own wrestling existence. If Jesus had to fight 
to obey, you're going to have to fight to obey. We're told that Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, except that he didn't disobey. Think of something that's really tempting to you. You know, you've been talking in a conversation, you've been, you've been in a women's Bible study, and, and the subject is not gossiping, and all the women are gossiping, and you're sitting there, and you're like, and your, int- your internal dialogue is going, I, can't, I shouldn't say anything, I shouldn't say, oh, oh man, I've got something really good to say, but I, I shouldn't say it, I shouldn't say it, I shouldn't say it, and you know what's going to happen. Do you know what's going to happen? You're going to say it. You know why? Because it feels better. The temptation goes away the second you give into it. That is my advice for you in these spiritual matters. If you're fighting temptation, the way to stop fighting temptation is to give into it. Anything you're tempted to do, if you go ahead and do it, you won't be tempted anymore. Can you tell I'm being facetious? Okay. But that's the truth. And if you were in that moment not to gossip, or you're tempted to retaliate when someone says something mean to you, or they say something you think they're saying something mean to you, and you want to give them a verbal jab right in the side, a sucker punch, a poetry. But you just just think, ah, I can't do it. If you don't say it, it feels like you're going to die. You're overcome by lust at the moment. You're overcome by greed and discontent. If you give into it, it feels better. If you fight it and don't give into it, it feels like you're going to die. That's what the priest and Moby Dick recognized, that to obey God, you have to disobey yourself. And that's the hard thing about obedience. Because nobody likes disobeying themselves. It's much easier to obey yourself than to disobey yourself. It's much harder to, disobey, to, to obey God than to disobey him. But Jesus knows all that difficulty. So in that respect, if he'd never sinned, his life was nothing but a humiliating cold shower, painful, a constant headache. Because he was tempted in every way, but he did not ever give into it. That means there was all kinds of wrestling and all kinds of fighting all the time that most of us just give into. But the other part is this. It says that God should make the author or the pioneer, the forerunner of our salvation perfect through suffering. And you have to realize this. If you belong to Jesus, if you are one with Jesus, then what can be said of him is going to be able to be said of you. And if he, fully God and fully man, had to be perfected in some way through suffering, do you think you will be different? There are going to be rigors and trials and there are going to be paces that he puts you through. Jesus, obviously this perfection is not some kind of moral perfection, but his suffering was learning to obey. His perfection through suffering, some of it had to be getting fit to perform his vocation as priest, as king, as prophet who reveals God, as the one who makes atonement for the sins of his people. And how this is helpful is this. And you may have heard me use this analogy before. I'm going to use it again. It's a helpful one. Think about if you were, let's say, a fine white shirt. And as a shirt, though, you had an uncanny intelligence and a sort of inner dialogue as a shirt, which is not common among shirts so far as we know. How do we know? So one day, unbeknownst to you, you got sweat stains around your collar, your, you got mustard because the person who's wearing you wasn't very careful, somebody kicked mud on you, 
a child spat up on you, spit it up, something. Your shirt, your white shirt, it's just, it's, it's not useful right now. So your owner puts you in this contraption. So far, so good. It's cool in there. So hot out in the world. It's cool and metallic. Ooh, feels good. And then suddenly he starts to drown you. And then, and then maybe he pours in some all, because he knows you have allergies, and he doesn't want you to have to deal with the dyes and perfumes. But nonetheless, this thick, viscous liquid comes in, and you're starting to suffocate and drown. You go, what, what's that? And the water's coming in, and the detergent's coming in. And then suddenly he starts throwing other clothes on top of you. And you're like in a Tennessee River in a triathlon, arms and legs swimming, and everybody's trying to get air. And you're getting submerged, and internally, your internal dialogue is going, well, I thought he liked me. Why does he hate me so much? He's trying to drown me. He's trying to smother me with viscous liquid. He's encompassing me with other clothing garments. This is awful. And then he's hit the super extra agitate cycle. And you start being swirled around. <laughs> and it's a pounding, and your head is throbbing, so, you know. You're trying to figure out, well, do I have a head or a shirt? But it's so painful. And it's so disorienting. And you start to imagine, do I have vertigo? Why am I so dizzy? And then you're like, how do I know about vertigo because I'm a shirt? But you start to wonder, what is going on here? And then finally that, that thing is over. When you start to breathe a little bit of sigh of relief, you're all, you're all wet and damp and you don't know if you're ever going to look like a shirt again. And then suddenly you're thrown into this apparatus where this intense heat comes on you and you're swirling around and you're banging your head and your knees and your elbows into the metal sides and all these clothes are pressing against you and you're banging into things. And again, you're saying, what's happening? Why does he hate me so much? Why does he hate me? What is he doing to me? Now, if you were a shirt, a thoughtful shirt, you might be wondering all these things. My owner must hate me. He must want me to die. He must not care about me in any respect. He sure does have a lot of clothes. But what you would not realize if you were a shirt is until later, when he proudly adorned you on a Sunday morning or every other day of the week, <laughs> that you were being perfected for use by your master. You were being perfected for use by your master. And in the process of being perfected, it, would have been, it might have felt awful. Jesus, through suffering, was made perfect so that he could fulfill his task of pioneering our salvation, of being our faithful high priest who's merciful toward us, of being the one who stands in the gap and atones for our sins. Your life is going to be similar. You have a rubric for understanding this wrestling existence. Some of the, the suffering that comes into your life is a way of Jesus making you fit for what he intends for you to be. You're subject to him. We're subject to him. He can spend us as he likes. But he's not going to do it cruelly. He does it with good intention. You can't always see that with your eyes. You can't trust your eyes. Looks aren't everything. You have to trust with your ears that every time he acts, he's doing it out of affection. Because he cares about what you become. He's paid us what C.S. Lewis said, the intolerable compliment, not of loving us too little 
but of loving us too much. Sometimes we wish he'd say, please, will you just look away now? Will you please leave me alone? It's too much. And he says, I'm sorry, I can't. Love bids me to keep at it. You have a rubric for understanding your whole existence. Looks aren't everything. And lastly, this. We're told that he who makes us holy and we who are being made holy are of the same family and that he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. He's not a teenager who's asking you to drop him off a little bit, drop her off a little bit down the road so they don't have to see the parents. He's not ashamed of us. Now, if this is true, and if it's true that since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death, he who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and he would free all those who all their lives were held in slavery by fear of death. And he had to be made like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of his people and that because he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tempted. If all of those things are true, things we hear but we don't necessarily see, then this means something. It means, one, God thought that you needed a priest that you needed somebody to stand between you and him so that you could connect with him. He thought that's what you needed. And this priest, we're told, is this Jesus who says this about you. I am not ashamed of you. I have made atonement for your sins. The sins that you needed to pay for, that you needed somehow to justify, that you somehow needed to do something about to get right side up with God again. I done did it. Jesus said in his grammatically correct way. Now this is helpful because something that Professor Jones shared with me yesterday, a a lyric from Bob Dylan that I'm imagining goes something like this. Preacher was a talking. There's a sermon he gave. He said... No, okay. Never again, sorry. Have you heard Bob Dylan? That was a pretty decent rendition. Preacher was a talking. There's a sermon he gave. He said, every man's conscience is vile and depraved. You cannot depend on it to be your guide when it is you who must keep it satisfied. Every man's conscience is vile and depraved. You can't depend on it to be your guide when it is you who must keep it satisfied. You know, Jiminy Cricket doesn't know much about anthropology and stewarding the inner life. Do you know this? Do you know who Jiminy Cricket is? Who told Pinocchio to let his conscience be his guide? Your conscience can be your guide in some respects if your conscience works right. But a lot of you don't have consciences that work right. And if you think that you alone are going to figure out how to soothe and quiet down your unruly conscience that condemns you, let me tell you something that should be a comfort. You will not be able to do it. You can't let your conscience guide you if you're the one who must keep it satisfied. But think of this. Yeah, you got something to say? Sounds like fighting words to me. That's Delcy. We'll talk later. The Apostle Paul in one place says, My conscience is clear 
but that doesn't make me innocent. Your conscience can tell you you're innocent when you're not. It can tell you you're guilty when you're not. What he recognizes, even though my conscience at the moment is clear and I don't feel particularly condemned about anything, that is not why I'm innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. And he could say, you know what? The Lord who judges me has let his judgment fall on himself for me. So it doesn't matter what my conscience says. It matters what he says. See, not just what I see with my own eyes, but what I trust from what I hear with my own ears. John White, a British psychiatrist, said this. God's answer to your guilty conscience is the death of his son. Your answer is usually something that you do. Like confessing harder, praying more, giving more, reading the Bible more, serving more. Now, some of you, if it weren't for your guilty conscience, you would never do a thing. I mean, I'm serious. Like, and so you don't stop doing everything because, you know, your guilt's driving you in a decent way. Thank you. That's, see, that's funny. But you know what? If this about believing with your ear is true, there are going to be times when you can minimize your looks at your insides. Robert Murray McShane in one place said, for every one look you take at yourself, take ten looks at the cross. Well, I think that sounds a little over-spiritual. And maybe you don't understand what that means. But you know what he's saying there? Like, you look at yourself sometimes and you say, look at me, look at my faith, it's flimsy. Look, I feel awfully ashamed. I don't know if I can look God in the eye. I'm somebody who hasn't done what I'm supposed to do. I've done things that I shouldn't have done. I feel dirty. I feel unworthy. And that's a loud and screaming voice inside of you. And you have to conceal it some way to deal with it. But what if Jesus had to become like us in every way so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and to make atonement for the sins of his people. In other words, he took all that gunk in you and he put it on himself and then they lit the fire. He was consumed as a sacrifice in your place. And so when you find yourself overly guilty, the thing to do is not to work harder or not to scream more loudly in judgment at other people who are also guilty. Some of our most ardent activists and our most vehement moral crusaders are some of the most guilty people around, I think. They're not going to be able to admit it. It's hard to admit it. You can't take very much reality. It's hard to admit your guilt unless you know there's a great deal of mercy on the other side. But if you trust your ears and not your eyes, you can say this Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest who has made atonement for my sins. The way for me to get out of my guilt is not to work harder. It's to say, here you go, Jesus. I trust you. I trust you. A woman that I know, that we know, texted me the other day, and I have several people in our lives where I've, because of my own maladies, have made it my ambition when I talk to these people to, to correct them, you know, because everybody likes that. But I don't correct them meanly, I don't think. I hope it's reassuringly, but there's this person, for instance, who was writing me the other day, asked me a question, and they always preface their questions like this, something like this. I'm so sorry to bother you, I know you're so busy. This is a text message, but this is what it sounds like in my ears. I know you're so busy, I'm so sorry to bother you. And, and, and then the subtext is, I don't, I don't really, I shouldn't even be on the planet. I'm sorry I'm taking up space on the earth. I, I'm quite sure that I'm just about to ruin your day by asking you a question. You know, and all these things. 
And so when I answer the question, my first response is, first of all, you must, in all caps, never apologize to me for asking me a question. You may never apologize to me when you text me or call me or email me. You may never apologize to me. Stop it. Stop it. I say sweetly. (laughs) But I say it ardently because you know why? Sometimes you are led to believe that your own internal dialogue about yourself matches God's. You think that because you think you're awful that that's all that God thinks about you. You think because you know what you did last summer that that's all God knows about you. You think that the, the sort of way that you look at yourself and the pit in your stomach and the, the grimy way you see yourself when you look in the mirror, you assume that everyone else sees you that same way and that so does God. And if you stop trusting your eyes and you start trusting your ears and hear this, the one who's ruling over everything came here that he might live a life in place of you that he might let himself be consumed so that you wouldn't. And he looks at you and he says, I am not ashamed of you. You might think you're guilty. I don't. Because I've paid the debt for your guilt. Trust it. Phillips Brooks once said, I think, we are saved not by the love that we show, but by the love that we trust. It's very easy because the voices inside you are loud. It's very easy because what's going on outside you is loud. It's very easy when your eyes are so much more preferential to your way of knowing than your ears to start to believe that God may not be there, that he may not like you very much, that he may not be doing anything in the world, that his suffering is an indication that he's displeased or maybe that he just fell asleep in the recliner. But you are saved not by the love that you demonstrate or by your own assessments. You're saved by the love that you trust. And this love has been made in the flesh. And this love, as the bluegrass singers, the gospel singers know, when Gillian Welch sings about this love, she says, I'll know my Savior when I come to him by the marks where the nails have been. By the marks where the nails have been, your Savior is not ashamed of you. So you don't be ashamed of you. Your Savior has forgiven you, so accept the forgiveness. Your Savior is the King of all. And he said, I'm available to help those who are being tempted. There isn't anything to keep you away from him except yourself. I urge you. Looks aren't everything. Put your trust in the one with marks where the nails have been, who's paid for your sins, who gives you understanding of who you are and what your life is to be, who's fitting you for a purpose and has taken all your sins away. And he says, I like you. I love you. Trust that love and not yourself. Amen.